Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show, the big show, the most important and critically acclaimed podcast that is recorded in our giant breath here, Car. Welcome to the show, and today we have a mystery podcast for you today. What is a mystery podcast? It means where one of those knows the topic and the other one does not, and so she just bothers on as if she knew what she was talking about. As usually, I am the clueless party in this equation. That's right. And today is, the topic of today's podcast is something she's very, very up on. Even though she doesn't know the subject of the podcast, she knows the subject quite well. And I'll tell you what got me to thinking about it. We were talking about doing a podcast, but we really hadn't decided we've got some ideas, kind of vague ones. And I, we were driving along, and we drove over Troublesome Creek. And Troublesome Creek is known as Troublesome Creek for a good reason. It is a uh, exceedingly prone to flash flooding. It's a very dangerous little creek because it flash floods a lot. Well, at least it used to. Not giving away too many secrets when I tell you, about in the, in the mid-'80s, I graduated from college and became the editor of a small-town newspaper. That's right. I was the editor for a, of a small-town newspaper for many years. And one of the very first things that I covered was a new government program called the Troublesome Creek Watershed Project. Dun, 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 dun. Basically what it was, it was building structures, dams and ponds, if you will, that are designed to catch water and slow down the rise of Troublesome Creek. And they built this, these things all over North Missouri. I mean, they're all over the place, these structures. And what they are, they're basically ponds with very high dams. So they can grow during a rainstorm. You know, we get a five-inch rain. They can fill almost all the way up to the top of the dam. But they have a discharge pipe a little more than half the way down the dam. So the water goes up, but it instantly starts to discharge. And it will discharge down to that uh, 12-inch drainage pipe. And then after that, it'll sit there in a pond and can be used as just a regular everyday pond. And they built these structures all over the place with the overall goal of reducing the flash flooding and the massive damage of erosion that was happening in the Troublesome Creek watershed. Now, part two of this was a um, huge plan by the USDA in two parts. One was to do soil conservation through the Soil Conservation Service by uh, changing people's minds about how you plant, how you prepare your fields, uh, by helping them switch over to no-till planting, by helping them put in grass waterways to reduce the amount of erosion, by helping them learn how to better use contour farming so that your your rows weren't running up and down the slope, but rather across the slope, which, again, reduces soil erosion. Them being the farmers, by Them the way. Them being the farmers, yes. So what's my point? My point was, when all this started in the mid-'80s, and I personally know a lot of the men who were, and they were men, it was the 80s, who were involved in this project have already passed. I mean, there were. This was a senior job. This was a senior engineer job. This was a a big job. This was a tens of millions of dollars project that were overseen by guys at the top of the top of the food chain in their departments. Okay, 
And I know one of them was a good friend of mine who passed several years ago. What, what, what's my point? My point is the Troublesome Creek Watershed Project, the structures in the fields, the fact that we no longer have drill farm or have a, a plow farming. It's all drill in this area. Every bit of it's drill. The only people who don't use drill farming are literally the Amish, and they don't do that big of a plot. Sidebar. Plow farming is when you take a plow and you turn over all the soil to four to six inches down. Usually do it twice a year. And it exposes a whole, it turns the soil over well and it aerates it and it helps it warm up and it makes it loose for the roots. But it also has a whole lot of basically unattached soil on the top. First rain comes along, your valuable topsoil goes downstream and ends up clogging up the waterways in Louisiana. Exactly, I'm sorry. Drill farming is instead of a plow, the implements have these uh, little drills spaced as far apart as you want the rows to be. And as you drive slowly down the field, they basically do hypodermic jabs and just stab holes in the soil and inject seeds down. Sorry. In there. I assume people love this stuff. (laughs) Pretty sure not everybody knows this stuff. So if you did, great. If you didn't, now we're on the same page. Sorry about that. And sidebar. Okay. Now... That doesn't count as our unofficial side, or unofficial, official <laughs> Okay. We get a digression. We haven't made it yet. So, all of this stuff that I'm talking about, and I also just saw a bunch of um, other structures in fields that they use to do swales with drain pipes in them and all kinds of stuff. You know, I mean, really technical you stuff. You contour the ground a little bit, catch the water, slow it down. Everything's about slowing down the water. So it has more time to soak into the soil, and and it doesn't just cause floods for a day and then be gone forever. It soaks in more gradually. All of this stuff is generational stuff. It's all generational. The people who did this were doing it for the next two, three, four, five generations. This is building generational infrastructure. And although this was a, a government project, to be fair, um, as a lot of the really big ones are, and I'm not really going to go into the whole government aspect of it, is a lot of times you can have generational things in private life. Let me, let me, let me share one. A guy I went to high school with, I was in my 20s, and I saw him, and he was, I mean, he was dirty, filthy, and he was, uh, I saw him in a town about halfway between the two. He was, I mean, he just, just sweat was... You could caked on him. You could tell he'd been working his tail off all day long. I'm like, man, what are you doing? You, you don't you work at a bank? It's like, yeah, but I was out working on my land. I said, what's land's that? He said, well, you know, I I got a project. So I bought 40 acres. Got them bought really well. They're just junk acres. There wasn't anything on them. They've been clear cut. So I got them cheap. So I bought 40 acres. And that 40 acres is my retirement. I'm like, yeah, your retirement. How so? He's like, I'm taking that 40 acres and I'm planting it in walnut trees. Walnut trees? You're what now? Yeah, I'm planting that 40 acres in walnut trees. So that by the time I retire, I'm going to have 40 acres of walnut lumber. And that's going to be my retirement. Mature walnut trees that provide good lumber are really valuable. And I'm like, okay, Bo, good on you. And you know what? He's retiring. He's, <laughs> well, he's not quite retired yet, but he now has 40 acres 
of mature lumber-planted walnut trees to retire on. Worth millions. Just because he spent a summer of spare time planting trees. And he's, instead of buying a fancy car, he bought land on the cheap because he was thinking ahead. Now his children have generational wealth. And it's, a, it's wealth in a form that can be cashed in at any time at need or left be to still continue to grow because the trees get bigger. They're still going to be, you know, until they get to that age when walnut trees start to deteriorate and they're nowhere near that. And they can start to take them out selectively then and, and replant sure. what they take out and continue to have that resource there for as long as they care to take care of it. And, and it's liable to stay valuable. And the whole deal is, you know, since they were lumber planted from the start, they were designed, they were far enough apart, he controlled all the, the junk species in between them so that they grew well. Yeah, it took some work. And he planted them in a way where they'll be harvestable without undue expense, because that's part of the value of lumberland when you get to use it. Yeah, this this dad's kid was a lumberman, or this kid's dad was you know, a lumberman. So this was something that was in his family, and he enjoys the work, but it's generational. He was thinking not only of himself, but of his children and of his grandchildren. It's generational. A lot of the farmers around here, you know, farms have been in the family for 100 years. They think generationally. They put up a barn. If that barn isn't for them. That barn... Is for their son's use and their use. It's a it's a way of thinking. And, and why? What does all this have to do with prepping? Because I don't see many uh, things in prepper world considering generational stuff. It's not much of a long term plan in many cases. And so I'm just trying to to bring this thought into people's heads a little bit. Hey, how can I make what I'm doing generational. How can I play the long game? How can, how, I yeah, how can I play the long game? Uh, I think some of the stuff is obvious. One, the most important thing you could do is to teach your children the skills. Teach your children the skills. And, and this is where I'm going to turn it over to Spice for a bit, because her parents, while not preppers, were really big into teaching all nine of their children, <laughs> the skills. And it wasn't, it didn't feel like school. It didn't feel like training. It felt like we are a family and these are the things we have to do to take care of our stuff and to keep things running. And you're going to help because that's what family members do. And along the way, I'm not just going to give you junk jobs where you uh, carry stuff around and things like that, you're actually going to learn to do the things. My dad had been, uh, when he was young, he'd been a carpenter. His dad was a carpenter. Uh, his dad immigrated. He worked with his dad a little bit when he was very young, and then he moved on to other jobs. But he still had some uh, carpentry kinds of skills. And when it came time to move out of the very badly adapted log cabin, literally log cabin, that we had much overgrown by the time I came around. Much overgrown. <laughs> yeah, we been, had a boys' dormitory upstairs. Yeah, it would have been a comfortable it, house for a parents and, and a couple of children. They had nine. <laughs> yeah. So. So when the time came to replace the house, it was a family project, and we all learned to do things. As a matter of fact, when my dad passed some years ago, 
uh, one of my elder brothers was handling the estate, and he made sure to keep for me this uh, tiny little hammer. It's really a finishing hammer for finishing nails, because that was what he remembered me habitually using when we were building the house. I would get the jobs where you have somebody little and agile who can climb out on things and do the stuff that the uh, big heavy people don't want to get out there and do, but are perfectly easy. For somebody like me, I had those kind of jobs. To be fair, you were what, seven, eight? Yeah, and I would take my little finishing hammer, and we had a garden. And it's not like we had a garden so I can teach you to grow food. We had a garden because eating is cool, and we have a whole lot of kids, and they can put away a whole lot of food. And this is how we can afford to live reasonably well on one income with nine kids. And even though you didn't garden for many years because it just didn't. Yeah, I didn't garden through my 20s and my 30s. And then at the, still, the end of my 30s, I picked up. the lessons start coming back that, that mom drilled into you. Um, I wasn't about clueless her. about how to do things. Yeah. Uh, and if she's in doubt, she can call her sister. Her sister can, can help her out. You know what I'm saying? Uh, cooking things from scratch, same sort of skill. Uh, I have always hated actual sewing, but I was made to learn a little bit, and that was obviously being taught as an intentional skill. Mom was like, no, isn't anybody leaving this house, male or female, who can't put their own buttons back on clothes when they fall out. That's that's not how we roll. <laughs> You're going to learn some of this stuff. So I learned some of the easy stuff, and it saved me quite a lot, actually. To be honest, given the expenses of making fresh clothing from scratch, which is actually fairly expensive, honestly, uh, compared to the cheap mass-produced stuff you can buy in stores, there's not much of a economic benefit to making a lot of your own clothing from scratch, but repairing stuff, and especially repairing outerwear, is an extremely important skill to extend the value of things you've got. And if things do get hard to get, it's going to be an even more important skill. I didn't stock up six pairs of insulated coveralls. I have one good pair of insulated coveralls and some extra zippers for it, because we know what goes out, and all i got to do is be able to replace the zippers. It's not like the whole piece of uh, clothing is going to spontaneously fall apart. So it's life skills. And many times now, people do not consider those kinds of life skills worth the time either for themselves to learn or to do. And then they get stuck when they're in a situation where the usual supports aren't handy. I was talking to, to one of my students last semester who had this ultra drama go on with a flat tire when for whatever reason the usual help is just a phone call away method did not serve to get their tire quickly and efficiently replaced with one they could run on and they ran into a lot of trouble because of that because they had no clue it's a tire how to do that yeah the part (laughs) they didn't even get to the part of changing the tire which since my students are smart people they probably could have managed but they're also smart enough to know that if you don't know how the heck to jack up a car, you probably don't want to make a random guess and then stick your body parts under the car. Well, you, first of all, you never stick your body parts under a car that you're changing the tire on because that would be dumb. But I know that. You know that. This person had never even seen a tire changed. 
That's true. I mean, but you don't. That. Just in case, as an aside, not this is not our official aside. As an aside, you never put your your, your any of your actual self underneath a car that's up on a tire jack. Even scissor jack doesn't matter. That thing had better have good solid jack stands under the axles before you stick a body part under there. And those jack stands need to not be cheapo Harbor Freight ones. They need to be the good ones, preferably the made in America ones. Okay, end of preaching. That whole uh, feet sticking out from underneath is only cool when it's Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. In The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's not nearly so cool when I it's an actual human being. You know what I'm saying? She's just hanging out being wicked and stuff, because that's what she You are what you are. And then somebody drops a house on her. Just boom, like boom. like. But if you're going to be wicked, sometimes your neighbors just have to splat you for their own self-protection. Although I think being vulnerable to having a house dropped on you, personally, would be a lot better core weakness than being doing melting if you get wet. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you can I mean, see that, the that, whole that, could be, that could be bad. It's a much oh, bigger crud, I spilled my water. How did she drink? How did the Wicked Witch of the West, or the, the East, West? I don't know. East How did the, the Wicked Witch her, drink? So a straw? I think if it was coffee, she was all right. Or, you know, monster energy drinks or something. Something nice uh, and toxic. Uh, she drank my, that's, that's what she is. She drank monster. <laughs> yeah. All right. To this day, flying monkeys? No. Creeps right out. Creeps me out. Flying monkeys are just wrong. Fortunately, we, do, we don't run into that often. Back to the topic. You know, we're, <laughs> we're going out. I'm going to go out and try and find some, some uh, birds to take pictures of today. And she was telling me that she had seen some at a Fabius River Access last week. She and her brother, her oldest brother, who is a generation older than she is. Thirteen years. Yeah, almost that. a generation. Um, nine kids, thirteen years. That should tell you everything you need to know, and not a set of twins among them. Uh, She's a prompt woman, my mother. <laughs> yes. Anywho, her oldest brother... So call her up and says, "Hey, you know, let me drive halfway across the state. Let's go, let's go kayaking." Yeah, you know, last week. Okay. It's uh, but, uh, between it's December and like Christmas. December. As we record this. Missouri, in North Missouri. It's December twentieth. Yeah. December. And I'm like, "Are you at your guards, people?" So anyway, they, he comes up. They're just cool. And they go out and they get the kayaks. They load them in the truck to, to go to the, and the water's all frozen. Not as stupid as it sounds. He had checked that very stream the same morning, and it had not been ice-choked in the morning when he came to pick me up. By the time we got back there, it was a cold day. That's the day it choked up. Here's the, here's oh, the I'm, thing. I'm not buying me not as stupid as it sounds. Like, that just sounds like a red. There are such things as called April and June, okay? we have been trying to get it together for six months, but because of the COVID thing, I, I wasn't free. <laughs> he came the, literally the first uh. week I was... Not overbooked with work. Uh, by the way, I don't know where the turnoff is, so you're going to have to tell me. Uh, we're going ahead to Taylor okay. then South. Okay. Go right so ahead. we went out to kayak, and we found some ice on the stream, and a little bit of ice was not a problem. He knows what he's doing. He's been a lot of places in a lot of different weathers, and he's a very capable outdoorsman. And I am not as capable, but I know his judgment is good, and I know how to pull the plug myself if I get uncomfortable. So we went ahead, and we went out for a bit, 
and we had to break small bits of ice, and that was okay. And we went until we saw that it was too jammed up to be able to reliably get to where we needed to take out. And then we aborted the situation, came back up, and just enjoyed the eagles and the swans and other things on the river that day. It was actually a very lovely day. Well, think about what's going on here. We've got a 50-something and a 70-something, probably 70-ish. Almost 70. Almost 70-year-old brother and sister out in the frigid cold kayaking. Wood smart, completely safe doing this because they know what they're doing. Their parents helped instill in them the love of outdoors activities and adventures. This This comes not from... An adult onset mania. This is not buying a red Corvette. Okay. This is something that their parents helped them develop back when they were kids. This was a generational gift from her mom and dad. And a lot of it was mental approaches. It was pre-planning. It was thinking about what you'll need if things go right. It was thinking about what you'll need if things go wrong. And my brother and I have lived far apart from each other for many years now. So he was uh, gently and under the radar checking me out before we went and was wanting to hear what I told him that, yeah, I do have these uh, this gear that plans to keep me dry. But in case I do get wet, plan B is I've got a bunch of wool layers underneath so I don't, you know, get hypothermic. If we accidentally do end up getting wet, I'm still covered. And then when, uh, as we were going out, I pointed out that, hey, you know, if your hands or feet get too cold, I've got some emergency warmers in my kit here. And he says, yeah, I got some too. <laughs> he had some fire starting stuff. I had some fire starting stuff. So, yeah, we were going kayaking when there was ice on the river. The, the very slow river, by the way. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's the, <laughs> very slow and fairly well, shallow. It's, yeah, Always waitable. Yeah. River so, is just a, yeah, it is a river. but It's yeah. something that was not necessarily in my comfort zone to do, but we had the skills to do it and do it safely and do it without stress. And if something went wrong, we wouldn't have been stuffed because we had three backup plans that also would have prevented tragedy if life didn't go as we expected it to go. And that is part of it, an understanding of what you, how you can push your boundaries and when you should not push your boundaries. We had a firm rule for when we were going to turn back. And abort if we needed to. And when that situation came up, okay, we're not going to try and talk ourselves around it, even though we're having fun. We're going to abort. Whereas if I had gone along, I would have been. I would have put everybody at risk. First of all, I don't kayak. I have no interest in it. Um, second of all, I am not. I don't possess the same skills they do. Okay. Uh, third, their level of fitness is higher than mine. I'm not a complete couch potato, but I'll be honest with you. Scrambling you know, up mud banks. Scrambling up mud banks, you know, with, with this foot of mine is not really much of an option. Uh, it just isn't. And fourth, I don't enjoy that sort of thing. So I would have been a drain in every way you could have been a drain. But I recognize that, and that's okay, because I can do other things. I have other skills. I have other uses. I have other, you know, and that's okay. You don't. I don't have to be these woodsman kayaker you know and that's fine but my point is the generational stuff if that makes sense not you don't have to everybody doesn't have to be everything but you should be some things and you should give what you are to the next generation if you can but uh since that monster has died 
let's roll the credits and wish everybody a good day. Thank you. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your friends. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go on to whichever distributor that you use, Amalgamator, whichever you use, go on and leave us a five-star review or a good review. If you don't enjoy the podcast, don't leave us a review. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, and we'll uh, see you the next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.